0: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds good morning everyone uh, welcome to our grand round series uh, everyone uh, is, I, I hope enjoying all the chocolate you had from halloween from a couple of days ago it was, uh, it was a beautiful celebration it was great to see the kids coming into our homes on their beautiful uh, attires uh, and it just reminded us that you know we can get back to normal it's been hard it's been a tough tough road but i think we're getting to the right place and today's a great day today actually the acip We'll be reviewing uh, the recommendation by the FDA that you know these vaccines for children five to 11 move forward. So we'll hear around 3 p.m. you know the ACIP final recommendation, and hopefully by later this evening, uh, the commission, uh, the uh, CDC director will sign into an agreement that will allow us to begin vaccinating hopefully tomorrow. Uh, and we will be doing that here at Connecticut Children's. If you have any questions, look at our website. But without further ado, I'm going to ask Dr. Fink, uh, my colleague and surgeon in chief to introduce uh, the grand rounds and then pass it on to Dr. Schoen, who will introduce Dr. Cushing, who's uh, joining us from Toronto. Chris?
1: Good morning. Thank you, everybody. I do want to uh, give a shout out and remind everybody to vote today. Your voice is important. I would love to introduce um, Dr. Schoen. Dr. Schoen is our very own uh, Director, Division Chief of Clinical Otolaryngology, as well as Professor of Clinical Otolaryngology at the University of Connecticut in Carmington. He is also the Associate Director of uh, Clinical Affairs at Connecticut Children. So he has a, a lot of voice within our department. One of the things that I love about him is, is that he is a staunch advocate and advocacy is his passion. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Schoen to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Cushing. Thanks, Chris, and good morning, everybody. Uh, we have a special treat this morning. I have the, the honor and privilege of introducing one of my Canadian friends, Dr. Sharon Cushing, and I'll be very brief even though her CV is not brief at all. And so uh, Sharon is from uh, Toronto at a hospital for sick children. She did her residency there in Toronto and then her fellowship in the States at uh, Seattle Children's and then back to Toronto where she's been since 2010. She's an associate professor of otolaryngology and a pediatric otolaryngologist, specifically at Hospital for uh, Sick Children. And she has well over 100 peer-reviewed articles, uh, many international presentations, awards, research grants, and and she's Canadian, so she's a nice person. So let me... uh, let Sharon start our presentation on belonging in a three-dimensional world. Impact of hearing and vestibular loss on the developing child. I hope you enjoy the presentation.
2: Thank you so much um, for the kind introduction. I'm going to just uh, share my screen. But as um, as I do that. Um, you know, it's it's really special for me um, when Dr. Shom reached out to me. Um, I was really excited. And of course, I said yes right away. Um, and I got to meet him when I was a resident. And, you know, when you go to a meeting as a resident, it's pretty intimidating. And one of my mentors introduced me to Dr. Shom, and he was immensely kind and made me feel Welcome, and we've continued to connect at academic meetings, you know, since that time, um, more than a decade and a half ago. And I think that it's really important, I think, to recognize the importance that that kind of um, mentorship and uh, you know kindness brings to you know a bit of a scared, intimidated resident. And so I think in this world um, we need more Dr. Sholmes. and if you ever have the opportunity um, to be one to a resident. I think it's a really important and impactful thing. You guys know this because you work with him, so you know how um, how awesome he is. But I, it, his reach is well beyond um, you know what uh, where you see him locally. So thank you for, for being kind to me as a resident. Um, you know, today we're going to take a little bit of a journey, and there's a few side steps here and there. But I'm I'm really looking forward to sharing with you some of the work that we've been doing um, up in Toronto over the last while. I have a few disclosures and um, you know, we all have these amazing teams that we work with and this is our clinical cochlear implant team. And um, this is our our weekly team meetings, COVID style. And we're we're all looking forward to being back in a room together, um, but we're managing as you are. We also have an amazing uh, research team and it's a lot of the work of these hard students that I'm gonna be presenting um, and speaking about today. So I think, you know, the world looks different. And some of the data that I'm going to show you today um, was collected before the pandemic. But I think that, you know, perspectives change and, and they changed a, a few times in our lives. And, and I'll, as I go through the talk, I'll I'll talk about some of the things personally that um, have allowed my perspective to change. But this was an image from France, and it was one of the first images, you know, of daycares opening back up. And I remember seeing this and I had an emotional reaction to this, this sort of concept that at a daycare, there's these children and they're confined to these boxes. And this is not the world that children live in, right? Uh, they live in a world where, you know, touch and interaction is important. They move when they speak. It's really um, anything but what you see here. And, and it made me sad to see this and it made me think about, you know, the vestibular system, which is what we're going to focus on today and, and the importance of having that physical interaction and how that was an impossibility in this moment. And then, you know, we were in the OR and one of the nurses talked about sort of bringing her, you know, daughter to, you know, one of these daycares that was open for healthcare workers. And that, again, changed my perspective because, you know, what if this little one here in yellow, well, that's the daughter of your OR nurse, and this one here is the daughter of your audiologist. And, and again, you know, this picture brought on an entirely new meeting in terms of the sacrifices that healthcare workers workers were making to come to work. And so I think that, you know, when we can't ignore what's going on in the world and it can have exceptional impact in terms of providing us with new perspective on old data. So that's going to be a little bit of the theme today. So. I can appreciate that um, that the audience is filled with um, pediatric experts, and so there's a few times where I'm going to navigate a little bit out of my league, and um, in terms of um, the things that you're expert in. But this is some data from a good friend and another mentor of mine, Dr. Rob O'Reilly, uh, who's at Chop, where they recently looked at what are the top diagnoses by age and in general for kids who are presenting with dizzy complaints. And what you can see is this is a long list and we're not gonna have time to go through all of these today, but I'm gonna focus on a few of them. So we'll talk very briefly about migraine because I can appreciate that I'm surrounded with with likely experts, Um, but we're gonna talk about some of the pediatric specific migraine variants and um, some some guidelines um, associated with diagnosis. We're gonna spend a lot of time talking about sensory neural hearing loss and inner ear malformation because that's really our wheelhouse. And that's the platform we're gonna use to look at development in children we're going to talk about CMB um, because I think it's, again, one of those diagnoses that spans all of our specialties. And then we're going to talk a little bit about anxiety and physical symptoms of mental health, because I think that um, even prior to the pandemic, this, you know, accounted for a substantial number of the children that we see in our clinics, um, and is increasingly so. So, Let's get started. And I, and I want to sort of tell you where this all began for us, because I, you know, I imagine that there's some trainees in the audience and, and you know, you might have questions about, you know, how do you develop an academic career? How do you have these kinds of questions? Um, and so for us, you know, our look into vestibular function in children began in the early 2000s. I was a resident and I was doing a master's at the time, and we happened to be starting to talk about bilateral cochlear implants and surgeons were worried that they were gonna cause bilateral vestibular loss and a bunch of kids who couldn't walk. And so we started to look very carefully at vestibular effects of cochlear implantation. And, and the truth is, is sticking an electrode into the inner ear is probably not good for res- residual vestibular function. And we've shown that you know through histology, through electrophysiologic responses. But what we found by asking that question, was amazing and very different than the question and hypothesis that we set out um, to ask and answer. And what we found was that vestibular dysfunction was the most common associated feature in any child with sensory neural hearing loss. And so essentially, when you look at the literature, about 70% of children who present with a hearing loss will have some degree of vestibular dysfunction. And when we look at those that are the worst of the worst, 35 to 40 percent will have complete absence of responses in their vestibular system. And so it really is the most common associated feature. And as clinicians, we talk about ordering EKGs and doing urinalysis for, for things that are a few percentage in association with sensory neural hearing loss. Yet, in many cases, we don't look for vestibular dysfunction. And so part of the reason is that it can be hard. It can be intimidating. And so we're going to talk about how we break it down, why it's important, and then also present some tools to see how we can do it effectively. Now, kids don't care what's happening in their lateral canals or in their otolith organs. What they care about is navigating that playground I showed you. And so early on, we recognized the importance of having both objective data as well as, um, this is objective data, but behavioral data. And so, we had to find a test that was easy enough for me as a surgeon to administer because I didn't have a physical therapist that worked with me. And so I had to do this. And so we settled on the Brunix-Ostovetsky test of motor proficiency. I'm going to call it the BOT2. And these are the items, but I'm going to show you what it looks like. So these are two children who are matched for age, gender, and T-shirt color. And what you can see is that they have vastly different balance skills. And so some of these tasks are, you know, with their eyes open. Some of them are with their eyes closed. It's a standardized test where you can do age and gender uh, normalization. And so you can get a sense of how the same child does over time. This little boy on the left has Usher's type 1 syndrome. So he has bilateral hearing loss bilateral vestibular loss, and he will um, develop visual loss as a result of uh, retinitis pigmentosa over time. And you can see that he really struggles with these tests. Um, And so this has really become a beautiful way of behaviorally demonstrating what the deficits are in these children. And so when we look at their balance performance across the group, these are our normal hearing children. Um, So we created our own uh, normalized cohort. Um, This is all comers with hearing loss, some of which have balance have vestibular impairment and some of which don't. And what you can see is that they are significantly worse in balance performers. And then this is that group of 35 to 40% of kids who have severe impairment, bilateral vestibular loss. And what I've written here is that this, when you have bilateral vestibular loss, you average out at the balance age of about a four and a half year old. And so if you can conjure up sort of what your typical four and a half year old can do, you know, there's lots of things they can do. They can walk into clinic, they can run into clinic, they probably can't ride a bike without trainers. And that's where we really need to look hard for these. And certainly us as otolaryngologists often miss the signs of vestibular impairment. And many people will say, well, I don't know what you're doing in Toronto, if the water's different or that kind of thing. But, you know, they'll say, we don't have this in our clinic and our kids with hearing loss, they're fine. And part of it just relates to what I just said. And so here's an example um, of a young man who had meningitis at a relatively young age and he's a competitive swimmer. So he swam for Canada in the Deaf Olympics. And so here he is in the pool. And like you'd look at this kid and go, wow, that's pretty amazing. Look at him swimming at a high level but he can't stand on one foot and he certainly can't do it with his eyes closed. Now watch as he comes, watch this flip turn and see how he slowly deviates off to the side. Well, that's because he's lost his visual focus. He's looking at that black line. He does not have a vestibular system to tell him where he is in space. And that costs him milliseconds. Now as a clinician, I'm like, you know, this is pretty good. This is a child who nearly died from their meningitis who had all of these issues, who is now hearing and swimming for the Deaf Olympics. But he says to me, Dr. Cushing, that deviation on that flip turn cost me milliseconds. And I not only want to swim in the Deaf Olympics, but I want to swim in the Olympics. So is there something you can do about my balance function to make it easier for me? And it's a reminder that, you know, we have the perspective as clinicians, but we really do have to listen to these children in terms of navigating what kinds of therapies we want to look at, um, because that's what matters at the end of the day. I think videos, again, you're going to see lots of them today are a great way to show sort of that dichotomy between doing great things with sensory dysfunction, but also having limitations. So here's our little guy that you saw earlier with Usher syndrome. And this is our cochlear implant skating party. And, you know, what an amazing feat of physiology. This kid has no vestibular system, but he's up on skates. It's like the beautiful Canadian dream. And then that happens. And that's hard to watch. And I've seen this video hundreds of times. And I flinch as a clinician and as a mom when I see him and his head hit the ground. And that's because he has no fall response. And so, yes, he can get up on skates. It took him a whole lot longer, but he's also at risk of injury because he doesn't have the typical fall responses. And so who is at risk? Because most of us don't have time in our busy clinic to look after all of the children um, that come in with hearing loss, for example. And so what I'm showing here in red are these are the kids that are at very high risk of having vestibular impairment as part of their um, associated hearing loss. Those with cochleovestibular vestibular anomalies might actually present as acutely vertiginous, whereas the others tend to present more like I've shown you as disequilibrium and balance dysfunction. In this group, we've got CMV and auditory neuropathy um, spectrum disorder. And these kids have partial peripheral abnormalities, but have very poor, um, very poor balance. And again, it's because there's often a central component. And these kids here in green tend to be um, tend to be relatively good. And so this is how we triage who needs the services in terms of evaluating their vestibular function. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about CMV. It's a special interest of of ours here at SickKids, but I also think it, it illustrates a few nice points that are going to help us navigate. So in Ontario, we've done something pretty special. So we have extended tests that we offer every child as part of our newborn hearing screen that look at specific risk factors for hearing loss. So regardless of whether or not you pass your newborn hearing screen, Every baby born in Ontario gets tested for congenital CMV, as well as some common genetic risk factors for hearing loss. Um, And so we're going to focus on the CMV portion of that. And this is some of the data that we've obtained since the program started in July of 2019. Um, We've had, you know, just over 250 positive CMV screens, 17 of which have at this point developed sensory neural hearing loss. And so this has really allowed us to find these kids early and avoid the delays that we sometimes see with their progressive losses. Now we know that CMV does a number on the inner ear and these are some corrosion casting taken in one of the labs here at SickKids at Dr. Harrison, one of our collaborators. And we see that essentially the virus acts on the vascular supply supply of the labyrinth. And that makes the cochlea and the inner ear very, um, very fragile, which is what leads to the progressive hearing loss. And we know that a huge number of these children will present either at birth or in a delayed fashion with sensory neural hearing loss. However, we know that CMV also targets the vestibular system, and I think it, you know this may actually be a bigger issue than we've actually recognized. And again, it acts as the vascular supply, and here we can see some immunofluorescent imaging of the virus present in the otolithic organs. And when we look at end organ function in these children, what we see is that there's a very high rate of vestibular dysfunction in these kids, it gets compounded by their central deficits and I think the balance is particularly poor in these kids. But I think that this is something that we need to continue to look at because oftentimes the vestibular dysfunction happens even in the absence of hearing loss. Now. This is going to be one of the, the little segues. One of the things that we found is that we were studying CMV and we were studying single-sided deafness and the impact of that. And what we saw was these two projects come together when we recognized that CMV was one of the more common causes of single-sided deafness in children. And we are, we are doing a study where we're offering cochlear implantation um, as an experimental protocol for these children with SSD. And what we found is that the majority of our children who ended up getting implanted, almost 40% or more than 40% had CMV. And when we think about... Um, the balance function in these kids, when we look at them again, these children do very poorly with respect to balance. And what we can see is that they're just as bad as our all comers with bilateral hearing loss. And they're about twice as good as our kids with bilateral vestibular loss. When we look at their end organ function, we see that about 50% will have abnormalities. And many of these are on the side of the, the deafness, but some of them are on both sides. And so this is where we get to consequences and development in children. And so there's a rich literature in the otolaryngology world about the consequences of unilateral hearing loss in children. And what you can see is that these are far-reaching. These children need more IEPs. They have difficulties with school performance. It impacts their quality of life. But we're blaming all of this on the hearing loss. And the truth is, is that these consequences are more likely a factor of unilateral labyrinthine loss. And as otolaryngologists, we haven't done a great job um, in terms of accounting for both of the sensory deficits. So in this next part, we're going to build a case as to why that matters. And, And certainly, I think as pediatricians, you're much more aware of the developmental impact than we generally are as a field in otolaryngology. And so Many of our colleagues look after um, older adults, and there's a rich literature looking at how hearing loss impacts cognitive decline. But we get the joy of working with children, and the beauty of children is that they're building their brains. That leaves us with the immense responsibility of having an impact on their development by the decisions we make or don't make, by what we do or don't do for these children. And for me, that do or don't do is often related to implantation or amplification of the hearing and hopefully someday manipulation of the vestibular system. And at the end of the day, what we want is for these children to connect better to their worlds and they need all of their senses to do that. And this is a much more typical picture of how we see children interacting than the one that I showed you at the beginning of the talk. And when we think about how we build our cognition and our intellect, you know, our senses are at the base of that. And what is often surprising to people is that vestibular function makes up one of the foundational pieces. It's actually more important than vision, an audition in terms of building your cognition and your intellect. And it makes sense. The brain is going to prioritize staying upright before it's going to prioritize being able to read or being able to appreciate social nuance. And so it's very much important that we consider and measure what the vestibular system is doing and what balance is doing as a greater outcome of that. And so this next part is going to focus a little bit on, you know, balance and navigation and what it means to navigate the world with sensory deficits. And so when we think about how we develop spatial knowledge, sort of knowing where we are in space, being cognizant of the world around us. And as I said, kids don't sit and speak like we are sort of today, uh, face to face. What they do is they converse and they move. And so it's immensely important that they have excellent spatial knowledge. We're not gonna touch on all of these, um, but what we're gonna do is focus on vision, hearing and vestibular function. So let's start with what happens when hearing is abnormal. So we already showed you this slide where we see that balance is abnormal in these kids. And I'm going to show you again another parental anecdote because parental anecdote is the key to all good research questions, I think. So um, this is a young girl. She's a competitive gymnast, and she has bilateral sensory neural hearing loss. Her vestibular function is intact. Okay, and so mom would tell us that she could tell the difference if one of her implants, the battery died in in practice, she could tell because she had an immediate change in her balance function. And so here she is in the unilateral setting where only one of her implants is working versus her usual bilateral setting. So we've modified her hearing environment. We've also modified the electrical milieu of her inner ears and that'll become important later in the talk. But what we see is an acute change in her balance function. Now, when we think of the senses that go into balance, classically the textbook answer is that it's vision, vestibular function and proprioception. But hearing is important, even though it's not in the textbook, it probably should be. And this is an example of why that's the case. So hearing in and of itself can impact balance function. And so we wanted to look further um, by posing a proper research question in response to this parental anecdote. And so what we did is we looked at children who we know have poor spatial hearing. We've got children with normal binaural hearing was part of the group. And then we had two groups with poor spatial hearing, abnormal binaural hearing. So these are kids who received bilateral cochlear implants. And so they're not able to detect sounds where they're coming from, even though they have access to sound on both sides. And then we have a group of kids who have untreated single-sided deafness. Okay, so they have no binaural cues. They cannot tell where sound is coming from. And we worked them hard. <laughs> we put them through um, about three hours worth of testing. And I'm going to just show you the culmination of that. What we saw is that these children had memory and learning deficits. And what was surprising to us is that the children with untreated SSD were almost as bad as bilaterally deaf children. You have a normal hearing ear here, but it meant that these spatial deficits were were significant. And so the other thing that we looked at was that these memory deficits were visual-spatial. And so when we did two-dimensional tests of visual spatial or three-dimensional tests of visual spatial tasks, that's where these memory deficits came out. And so it demonstrates to us that, again, spatial hearing is very much important for memory and learning. And even children with a normal hearing ear um, will struggle with these deficits. Now, what about if you have two systems out, hearing and vestibular function? Well, I showed you that these are kids where, again, their balance... A skills plateau at the level of four, um, just under four and a half. And so um, I'm going to show you what it looks like to navigate a ski hill with the balance skills of a four and a half year old. And so this is our young boy with ushers and, and they actually now live in New Jersey. So this is a hill closer to you guys um, uh, in, in New Jersey. And that's what it looks like to navigate a hill, so he doesn't know where his body is in space. He cannot predict verticality. So how and is he ever going to land the ski jump? Right, um, but he's determined, and and this is just again a little um, a little side uh, point is that the there's immense plasticity to children. And again, I'm preaching to the choir by saying that. And so, is it possible to learn to land a ski jump with? no vestibular system. Well, you know, this is a feel good story. So the answer is absolutely yes. So if you practice enough and you put enough effort in, you can land a ski jump with no vestibular system. But if you ask this child's mom, like, what was the cost of this? Well, she'll tell you, he didn't socialize that weekend. He didn't make his bed. He did not do his homework. And he spent hours and hours taking the same jump. And so, even though children can do amazing things, despite their sensory physiology, there's a cost to it. And I think that that then shows up in terms of their learning and development. And so, what about vision? So I'm not a visual scientist, but we wanted to look at sort of one of the foundational elements of balance. And so what we did is we put a number of children who had a developmental visual anomaly, strabismus and amblyopia. And we did this in the in collaboration with our ophthalmology colleagues. And we put them through the bot test. So these kids have normal hearing, normal vestibular function, but they have a congenital developmental visual anomaly. And what you can see in comparison to the data I've shown you before is that they're way worse than all comers with hearing loss. And they're almost just as bad as our kids with bilateral vestibular loss. And for us, this was a bit of an aha moment because, again, it's the kind of thing we think about adults um, or older children with acquired sensory losses. And, you know, we say, oh, they're going to be fine because they're going to reprogram and reweight their sensory input onto the trilogy of vision, um, vestibular function and proprioception. I'd add hearing in there as well. But these kids never developed that framework because they were missing a sense since the time they were born. And so we are not able to just think about these kids as little adults. We have to think about them as children who were missing some of those significant building blocks. And so they do not have the adaptive mechanisms that perhaps acquired losses have. They do have the beauty of a plastic braid. And that's how we need to focus our therapies. So how can we make it better? So in terms of hearing, um, what we've looked at is how does the addition of bilateral cochlear implants, does it improve balance? And what we see is that, yes, it does. So the simple act of giving children bilateral amplification or bilateral cochlear implants leads to a significant increment in balance function. And so that's a pretty amazing thing because that's something that we have in our wheelhouse and that we can do today. But Can we do better? And that's where the research question comes in. And that is, can we help vestibular function? We don't yet have implants. And that's been the focus of our research. And very early on, one of the questions we have is, can we use the electrical current from a cochlear implant in the vestibular system? It's all one fluid containing space. So any um, physiologist will tell you that current loves to travel in fluid. And so that's the question that we looked at. And we looked at, an electrophysiologic response that's based in the otolith organs. It's called a VEMP, vestibular evoked myogenic potential. And what we saw is that these are typical acoustic responses, and we were able to elicit these with our implants, which was pretty cool. But what was even cooler is that in some children, because of their deafness or because I put a cochlear implant in, they had obliteration of their acoustic responses. That part of the ear didn't work any longer. And what we were able to do, however, was reestablish that electrophysiologic response with our implant. And so that was a pretty amazing thing because certainly perhaps that capacity would help that kid land that ski jump. But what about the behavioral component? So we talked about perception of verticality and how that can be important, for example, in the ski jump. And we know that abnormalities in the otolithic organs in particular create these perceptual abnormalities in verticality. And so that's what we decided to do. It's called the bucket test. It's super cheap. So this is a a bucket from the hardware store. This is uh, an app uh, on an old iPod that we put at the bottom. And we essentially tested these kids. And I'm going to take you through this data slide. So when you have an abnormality in verticality, when you're asked to realign that, you either lean left or you lean right. And that's essentially what we're measuring with this test. And so when we turned on these kids implants, what we found is that the left leaners shifted right and the right leaners shifted left. We were able with their implants to correct their misperception of verticality. Now, certainly our ability to do that with a cochlear implant is going to help that kid land the ski jump. But can we take it one step further? And this is where we've been working on this idea for a long time now, um, but it's, it's slowly moving forward, is that can we give them more meaningful signals? Because we know these brains are hungry. Give them something they can work with. And so what we did is we worked with one of our implant companies to essentially create an inner ear adapter for it. So we used accelerometers and gyroscopes, and essentially we're converting the electrical stimulation into head reference signals, This is an example of an early prototype. So um, this is our young boy with ushers. It's actually two brothers. um, And you can see that he's really struggling to stay upright. We're on some foam, so we've made it hard. Whereas here, he's got enough cognitive reserve to scratch his nose. He's gonna clap his hands in a second. And so he's using that stimulation in order to stabilize his balance. Not in the way that it was meant to come from the factory, but in a way that probably does require some effort, but that is beneficial. And so the videos are gorgeous, but I got to show you some data. Um, And so this is a group of children where again, we measured their balance with the devices off with uh, versus with head reference stimulation. And what we saw was a consistent improvement um, in their balance function. And so the beauty of this is it doesn't require another operation. It doesn't require a vestibular implant, um, but essentially can be retrofitted. So that's where we're excited about the potential impact this has. We've gotten into more sophisticated testing because there's predictable balance um, perdu- predictable balance, and then there's unpredictable balance. We call this the subway task. Um, and so essentially it's your ability to uh, respond to a perturbation. So um, this is one of our uh, master's students. And so we put kids through this test both um, with the device on and with the device off. So let me show you some of that data. These kids are rigged up with a bunch of um, positional um, uh, measurements. And what we can see here is that our group with the cochlear implants is in red. Um, And essentially, what we see is that they move much more than than the um, control group in response to these perturbations but we can make an improvement when we give them head referenced information. So this is something that again we're working towards um, having something useful to help these patients through. So that's the you know where I spend most of my time. You know, because we were talking to a very broad audience, including pediatricians, I wanted to add in a few of the other disorders that we talk about and we see in our multidisciplinary vestibular clinics. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit, um, you know, as we as we head towards the finish line. In terms of, um, you know, one of the most common things that you saw um, in that initial chart was migraine disorders. And again, I'm not going to speak elaborately about migraine disorders because um, I know there's experts in the audience, but this is a new set of criteria that I helped um, with, um, in order to look at um, vestibular migraine disorders, particularly in children, um, and again, there's these three disorders, and we're only going to go um, through one of them, and that's going to be the recurrent vertigo of childhood. And um, like all the good disorders, these are the diagnostic criteria, um, and essentially. Um, you know, one of the challenges I recognized in terms of developing um, diagnostic criteria is that they end up broader than you'd like them to be for the sake of inclusion. And so, you know, I've highlighted one of the things here that we talked a lot about as a committee. Um, So recurrent vertigo of childhood are these brief episodes. And they typically will last essentially not more than minutes. But again, in order to be inclusive, we had to extend that to 72 hours. But what I will tell you is that practically, these are things that present very quickly, the child is fearful, they will grab onto their their parent, they will shut their eyes, and they can come on very, very young, but often don't get recognized until children have the language ability to, um, to actually say the house is shaking, or um, things are moving, or I'm on a merry go round. And so it's really um, one of those things that parents often come in and recognize that it's been happening for um, quite a long time. Now, D is important because it is a diagnosis of exclusion. And so this is where, again, we work with our colleagues and our pediatricians in particular to rule out the other stuff. And so, um, you know, there are a couple, we'll talk about some of the mimickers for this disorder, but these kids come in and it is textbook and um, it can be very helpful to, um, to these families to make this diagnosis. And it's one that people are often unaware of. I'm going to show you some um, some videos here. So here is a young girl, and mom's doing her best job. It's hard to get videos of nystagmus in babies, so I credit this mom for um, for getting this video. And what you can see is the children can have horizontal nystagmus. And then I'm going to show you this video of a young girl um, who's in the middle of attack an attack. So these often do come on with movement, um, but it's not um, it's not necessary. Part of it is kids move a lot, right? And so kids are often in funny um, positions. And so, um, you know, this is her in the playground and mum recognized, the video is a little bit slow, mum recognized that she was having an attack, but she presents, you know, essentially with ataxia. But kids don't quit when it comes to play, right? It's what we all love about um, working with children. And so she's bound and determined to get up and move around and to play, but she really can't during these episodes. And this is a child who has typical uh, development and typical balance skills when she's not in the midst of an episode. And so these episodes can be very severe and have significant impact and be very worrisome for families. And so when we're able to make this diagnosis, um, it is very reassuring for families. In terms of, in most cases, it's self limiting. Um, it can be treated by migraine. And again, I won't get into this because I'm, I'm by no means an, ex- an expert at treating migraines. Although the truth is, is that with um, reassurance and ruling out of the mimickers, which include temporary, uh, t- uh, temporal lobe seizure and hereditary ataxias, families are often just happy to know their child doesn't have a brain tumor and children will generally grow out of this. Typically all of them by nine years of age, many by an earlier, um, an earlier age. So I think this is a very important entity to know about. The other entity that is a bit of a newer term, but not a new disorder, is this diagnosis called triple PD. So persistent postural perceptual dizziness. Um, It was something that was coined at the Mayo Clinic. And again, it tends to be a grab bag for all of these other disorders, phobic postural vertigo, visual vertigo, chronic subjective dizziness. In terms of the diagnostic criteria, essentially you have non spinning vertigo. So, dizziness, unsteadiness, and and the presence of the feeling of the presence of motion, it happens. Chronically, So on most days, they'll often say that it's always there. So anytime someone says the vertigo is constant, I know it's not a peripheral cause. And I do wonder about triple PD. And it does get worse with movement or with exposure to moving stimuli, hallway carpets in a hotel, for example, the grocery store, busy visual scenes. Oftentimes, these individuals may have had a peripheral insult at the beginning of this, and so they may have had a labyrinthitis or they may have had um, BPPV or or something that brought it on. They may have had a concussion, for example, Um, and then it became and morphed into a more constant daily dizziness, and it can present with these other conditions. We don't fully know the pathophysiology, and probably it's not a unique a single one. Um, there's a number of functional changes, um, and it's generally classified as a chronic functional vestibular disorder the diagnostic criteria suggest that it's not a structural disorder and that I can agree with, but that it's also not a psychiatric condition. And I think this speaks to our, our general poor um, classification as physicians, when we put mind in one box and body in the other box. And last time I went to medical school, I'm pretty sure the head's attached to the body. So I'm not entirely sure that we can um, put this like this, I think part of the purpose is that families don't like to have a child diagnosed with a psychiatric condition um, in general, but I think this does a poor a poor job of, of speaking of the mind and body connection. In terms of the treatment, and this is where we need our pediatrician's help, um, is that we need to treat the, any comorbidities, but oftentimes it's a trilogy of counseling, SSRIs, And then physical and habituation therapy. And this can work very, very well, but it's sometimes difficult to get families to buy in. I spoke about the high prevalence of mental health symptoms in the children that I see in the dizzy clinic. And, you know, this is some old data, but essentially we looked at the, a, a group of 500 kids that we had seen over a time period, and, and 20% of them were referred to a social worker who does counseling in our clinic. And some of them did have peripheral and central causes that were giving them functional deficits. And then many of them had, um, were a function of a conversion disorder. Um, you know, now we would also include triple PD in this category only 2% ended up needing a referral to psychiatry. And I think it speaks to the the work of our social worker, but it's a beautiful thing for me to be able to, to not be forced to just say, it's not your inner ear, but that, no, no, I'm going to help you with this. Um, And so even as a surgeon and as an otolaryngologist, we've taken these on in terms of trying to get these kids where they need to go. So We've got dizzy kids, it's important to identify them. It's important to have some screening for the vestibular system. And so the final thing that I'm gonna talk about is just um, some simple tools that we can use in order to identify these. This is often a list that I put together for my surgeon colleagues, um, you know, to encourage them to test for these things. Many of these things are gonna be second hat um, uh, to the pediatricians in the audience. But I ask my surgical colleagues, I say, take a history, Ask about the motor milestones because the parents don't know that hearing and vestibular function is housed in the same area. And so here I've put the upper limits of what is typical. So head control beyond four months, sitting beyond nine months, and walking beyond 18 months should all raise red flags and say, okay, I got to have someone look at this kid. Now our audiologists do this and it can be very effective. And what I've come to learn is that parents who had typically developing children sort of forget when this stuff happened, especially if there's more than one kid. But for the parent who sat at the mommy um, child group, whose kid wasn't doing what all the other kids, that's forever ingrained in their brain. And the minute you start asking these questions, the floodgates open. In terms of getting an assessment of balance, it's not practical for everybody to do the bot. And so we typically do one leg standing in kids. Um, And again, a two and a half year old will be able to do this briefly and a five year old should be able to do it for 10 seconds. And this tends to be much more effective than doing the Romberg, for example. We looked at how good this test was because we had all these kids where we knew they had bilateral vestibular loss. And so we looked at all of the items of the bot and how predictive these tests were using a number of ROC curves. And what we see is that if you're over five and you can't stand on one foot with your eyes open, For more than eight seconds, then you you certainly are likely to have some form of a deficit. It's not specific to vestibular impairment. Um, The kids with neurologic disorders will also not pass this test, but it's a bit of a guideline for ongoing assessment. And if you're unable to do it with your eyes closed for less than four seconds, the sensitivity and the specificity were quite good um, in terms of determining uh, using this as a screening tool. And so the final bit of this is how do we then connect that deficit to the peripheral vestibular system? And so here we're doing a head thrust test. So this is a test for the horizontal canal. This is how we would do it in clinic. You'd have them sitting on the parent's lap. You have to have some fun things and fun targets for the kids to look at. But you can see he doesn't mind me changing his head, turning his head from side to side. Now watch as I go left. There's a huge saccade back. It's barn door obvious. And so in that moment in the clinic, we can say this child's balance deficit is as a result of a peripheral vestibular deficit in the form of the horizontal canal. And I think that that can be super important to be able to to do that in the clinic with these kids. There's some new fancier objective ways to do this. So this is a pair of video head impulse glasses, which allows us to do this objectively. This is a young boy with a posterior fossa tumor. um, And these kids, many, most will have balance dysfunction. And some of that will be due to peripheral deficits. Kids like to move their head, so we're calibrating these, you know, Captain America goggles that are shooting laser beams to make it fun. Um, and he needs me to hold his head because otherwise um, kids will move their head around and around. I've not edited this out because this is what happens, <laughs> right? He takes off the glasses when I'm not looking and and I have to recalibrate them, Um And you'll see me adjusting my hands here because every time I turn his head, he's saying out and mom knows, look at the smile on her face. She knows that he's joking with me, um, but it just speaks to the the sometimes challenges we have in these kids um, and also the value of a second tester. But with this test, we were able to determine that he had vestibular uh, impairment at the level of the horizontal canal. Now, This is a final video. I call this the mom-powered rotary chair. And so babies under six months can't suppress their VOR. So you can spin them in a chair and look at that beautiful post-rotary nystagmus. This is my son at three months of age, and that's gotta be the most beautiful post-rotary nystagmus I have ever seen. In my life. And so with babies, you don't need any fancy equipment um, in order to do this assessment of horizontal canal function. And so all you need to do is have the parents spin them in the chair, going round and round and round. And if their horizontal canals are intact, you'll see that wicked and beautiful post rotary nystagmus afterwards. So in that moment, you can say that this child, perhaps with hearing loss, for example, has intact horizontal canal function. And so these are the tools that we have encouraged clinicians to use in order to add that assessment into their busy clinic. Some days you might only have time to do the motor milestone review, but then you can get them to someone um, who's able to do a more formal assessment. So in summary, we've talked about a lot of things, but I hope that the messages that I've conveyed is that vestibular loss is a common thing. And it is important to these children's development and how they function in the world. We can um, acknowledge it and assess it using a thorough evaluation that can start with a screening assessment, which can be very um, simple to do or simple to add to the clinic. Um, And so I think that there is, you know, very important reasons to continue to look at this group of children and to work in a multidisciplinary fashion so we can all bring our pieces um, to help these kids um, develop and live the lives that they that they hope to. So I'll finish there. And, and, you know, thank you for your attention today. And I'd be happy if there's any questions or, or follow-up comments.
0: Thank you, uh, Dr. Cushing. That was uh, absolutely superb. I really appreciate it. Not sure my problem falling off from skates is because of vestibular function. I think is more clumsiness, but uh, maybe I'll get tested and have an excuse. Uh, Really, really fantastic, and your child is absolutely beautiful. So thank thank you you for for sharing that with us. All right, so we have uh, we have time for questions. I'm going to pass it on to Doctor. Schoen to uh, manage the question and answer session. Scott, thanks, Juan.
1: I don't see any questions in the q and I'm just checking the, the chat box to see if there's something there. Um, and so I have a question, Sharon. Thank you so much for an amazing presentation. If there's one thing that the pediatrician can do in their office as the best screening tool, uh, w- what would you recommend that they do before deciding that they want to send their child to our vestibular clinic for testing?
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, I think pediatricians do a way better job than we do at otolaryngologists at taking a history and doing a physical exam, I think think that's pretty safe to say. And so I would imagine that, again, a review of the motor milestones and um, some screening tests of balance would be part and parcel um, of what they would typically do. You know, and I think, you know, based on that alone, you know, I'm happy you know, happy to receive, you know, referrals, um, you know, from that perspective, you know, I think if there was one test I'd want to get good at as a clinician looking after children with dizziness or with imbalance would be a head thrust test. And I think, um, again, it's one of those things that you sort of wonder, like, am I actually going to be able to know when it's abnormal, um, but I think the more that you do, the truth is you will. Um, and so that would be the one test that I would recommend any clinician do who are going to see these children, in particular, um, is is that a head thrust test, just a clinical head thrust test.
1: Okay, thanks. Because many of the questions I get from pediatricians on this is, do I send the patient first to your team or to a pediatric neurologist hmm. for? For testing, where, where do I go in my algorithm? You know, for for like, do I do it all at once? Do I do it step by step? And so, if if you could give a a, a little guide for pediatricians on that, I think that'd be helpful for them.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, and the truth is, is probably in most cases, it's both Um, because there's such an immense overlap between, you know, what we see from a peripheral perspective and then what what the neurologists see from a central perspective. And then there's intermingling. Um, You know, I have the good fortune and it took um, it took a long time for that to actually happen to have a neurologist in clinic. In my virtual, uh, in my dizzy clinic, um, with us, and it has been amazing. Just because, again, we sort of pick up where the other leaves off, and it, you know, offers to the families a much more um, concerted uh, evaluation. But it took a while because we have great neurologists and they're lovely people. But frankly, nobody really wanted to see dizzy kids, right? <laughs> um, and and I think that's one of the one of the challenging um, things partly because we feel uncomfortable, right? We often don't know what the diagnosis is. We rule out all the important stuff, but we're often left with not knowing and helping families navigate that. But I think, you know, when we do it together, I think we do a really great job and we rely very heavily on our pediatricians to then help us institute some of the therapies um, as well. So I would often say both neurology and, um, and otolaryngology is a reasonable approach.
1: Thanks,
0: Sharon. Can you actually see the uh, Q&A? Yeah, Scott, there are two questions. Uh, One is, uh, when you turn children to check their PRN, is it always four turns? Does it depend on the child's age?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, uh, I think I only uh, I uh, I only did that many probably because I was getting dizzy in that chair. But um, I, you can see that even with that short amount of turning, um, you generate rotary nystagmus. You know, I think if you do four to six, that should be enough. If it is, if you don't see any rotary nystagmus, then I would probably spin them some more. Um, the parents do sort of feel nauseous and and unhappy with it
0: that uh, the age at which the cochlear, uh, cochlear implant is done and how long does it, uh, how long does it take?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, and it's one that has changed immensely even over the course of the last 10 years so the youngest child we've implanted has been three months old um, and that is typically that age is because of meningitis so you have to get the implant in otherwise their cochlear will ossify and you'll lose the opportunity to do it um, certainly our preferred age is you know somewhere between six and nine months and ideally less than a year but There's lots of things that get in the way of that, um, including, um, you know, parental acceptance and working through grief. There's diagnostic barriers, Um, but ideally somewhere, you know, under one year of age um, is when we like when we like to do it. The newborn screening in terms of CMV and the genetic factors has really moved it along, actually, in a way that I didn't predict, because now families come in, they have an ABR that shows deafness, and they have a genetic test that tells them why. And that does an immense job of moving families through the stages of grief in a way that gets them to the action part of it, um, where they're willing to accept what's happening and allow us to sort of apply interventions. So that's brought down our age um, of, of implantation. Um, We book, you know, we book about four hours to do a bilateral implant. The actual operating probably takes two and a half. And then we book um, two and a half for a single implant. And again, the operating takes us about an hour and an hour and a bit. I'm
0: going to close the the session. Well,
2: thank thank you you very much. Thanks, Sharon. Have a great day. Nice to see you all.
0: Take care, everyone. Be safe. We'll be waiting eagerly for the vaccine news.
1: Thanks for listening to
0: Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing, or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org/podcast.